It is a great joy to be here. I've loved my conversations. I love the questions that I've had a chance to uh, speak to, the conversations with students and faculty, uh, the engagement. Thank you so much. A great joy. And indeed, the vision for these three um, opportunities to address you has been how absolutely beautiful it is when our worship and our doctrine and our life fit together. And really, the Reformation was not just a reformation of ideas, and it wasn't just a revival of religious practices. It, it was really a reordering of everything, of worship, doctrine, and life in ways that connected in powerful ways. It was a struggle along the way, as I mentioned yesterday. It took time, and it took pastoral determination and strategies that invited people, ordinary people, many of whom could not read or write, to participate in this new, really, revival of the integration of worship, doctrine, and life. And it's beautiful to see how people like Calvin and Luther, Martin Bootser I'll mention today, and many other reformers were not just theologians, but had a pastoral imagination that invited people in to a deeper engagement with the Christian faith. And I hope it's that vision of integration that really sticks with us all. And the other theme really that I've been exploring is that for all of them, there was a kind of back to the basics approach. Back to the basics approach that actually put children at the center of a conversation and invited children to grow up learning the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and not just what those things meant, but how they invited us into new ways of praying and living. And it's that back to the basics, deep integration that permeated the ministries of these early reformers. And so with that in mind, we turn today to the text for my reflections this morning from Psalm 19. And like yesterday, I'm gonna invite you to stand for our reading of God's word. But today I'm going to do this a little differently. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me uh, one line at a time. And I encourage you actually in this particular case not to follow along just because we probably have a different translation and we'll just avoid some of the challenges that come with that. So take these words in and just echo back the words that I say. The word of the Lord from Psalm 19 beginning at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. Enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also, Sweeter also 
than honey. The drippings of the honeycomb. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yeah. Oh, these are beautiful words, and I love the cadence in the psalm. Can you feel kind of the energy of the poetry of Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You can almost start singing it as you read it, and you realize that the poet in the Psalter, the poet was always trying to just live into that beauty, more to be the desired then gold, then fine gold, and then, and then he thought, I got even one better, sweeter than honey, one more time, the drippings of the honeycomb. Every line of that poetry intensifying this vision of beauty for the law of God. Now, I've already said that the Ten Commandments were one of the building blocks for reforming daily life in the Reformation period. Luther in Wittenberg, Martin Boots in Strasbourg, Calvin, Geneva, the Ten Commandments were important. They were taught as part of the core curriculum in church school, otherwise known as catechism. And as I said yesterday, Luther was famous for developing this six-song summary of the Christian faith, and one of those famous songs was on the Ten Commandments. But we're going to pick up the story uh, couple decades after Luther started the Reformation, and we're going to go to Strasbourg in the year 1539. And what I invite you to do is imagine John Calvin going to church in Strasbourg. Every Sunday, Calvin would go to church. Sometimes he would preach. He was, became part of a kind of leadership group before his time in Geneva. But when John Calvin would go to church there, a formative time, he would participate in a prayer of confession every single week that Martin Bootser had put in place as part of the weekly liturgy or worship flow in Geneva. And I want you to just listen your way through the Ten Commandments to feel what it might have been like to worship in Strasbourg in 1539. So the pastor would have invited the congregation, let us now confess our sins with the words of our mouth and the aspirations of our heart. And then here was the prayer. I confess that I have not believed in you, my one God and Father, but have put my faith and trust more in creatures than you. I confess that I have taken your holy name in vain and have often sworn falsely and lightly by the same. I confess that I have not kept your Sabbath holy, that I have not heard your holy word with earnestness or lived according to the same. Moreover, that I have not yielded myself fully to your divine hand. I confess that I have not honored my father and mother, that I have been disobedient to all whom I justly own obedience, such as my father and mother, my superiors, and all who have tried to guide and teach me faithfully. I confess that I have taken life that I have offended my neighbor often by word and deed, caused him harm, grown angry, borne envy and hatred toward him, deprived him of honor and the like. I confess that I have been unchaste and I acknowledge all my sins of the flesh and the excess and extravagance of my whole life in eating, drinking, clothing and other things. I confess that I have stolen I acknowledge my greed. I admit that in the use of my worldly goods I have set myself against you and your holy laws. 
I confess that I have borne witness, that I have been untrue and unfaithful toward my neighbor. I have lied to him and told lies about him. And finally, I confess that I have coveted the possessions and spouses of others. I acknowledge in summary that my whole life is nothing else than sin and transgression of your holy commandments and an inclination toward evil. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would forgive me of these and all my sins. Keep and preserve me that I may walk in your way according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now that, friends, is a high-protein prayer of confession. I mean, it is packed with specific reference to every one of those Ten Commandments. And so the liturgy, every week, not only would have rehearsed the Ten Commandments, but would have invited people to pray their way through them. This is the weighty, regular use of God's law. And it actually has deep roots going back, much farther back than Luther, but certainly in new and revitalized ways in this Reformation time period. But now, as I read that prayer, and you heard those words, did you feel in your soul just a little bit of a gap between that experience of the prayer and the words of Psalm 19? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That prayer of confession is powerful and beautiful, and it is potentially profoundly helpful in pricking the conscience and reminding people of areas in their life that needed emendation. But for John Calvin, there was this experience of a gap between primarily using the Ten Commandments in church that way and the precepts of the Lord are good, rejoicing the heart. Now, if you're a theology major, by now you probably know where I'm going with this. Because you see, there was a little bit of a controversy or tension about the function of the law in the Christian life. And John Calvin's insight and passion are actually right at the center of it. And for insight on this, there is an amazing little book in your bookstore on campus called The Pocket Dictionary of the Reformed Tradition, co-authored by Professor Capick. And I turn in this wonderful book, three copies in the bookstore yet today too, by the way, where I turn to the entry on the law of God and I read this beautiful, pithy summary. The law, three uses. A distinction made by many reformers, notably John Calvin, between three different functions of the moral law as revealed in Scripture. The first, or civil use of the law, is its role in restraining sin and promoting order within society as a whole. Uh, praise God that we have laws in our country about murder. It restrains evil. It is good, and it has always been good in restraining evil where there are laws to that effect. The second use of the law, or pedagogical use, is the law's power to convict sinners and drive them to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. That prayer in Butzer's Strasbourg Liturgy that Calvin experienced every week was the second use of the law in action. 
And it is good to use the law to guide our repentance. It's good. I also, by the way, love the way that it's easy to see the connection between an idea, like the second use of the law, the pedagogical use, I could imagine that being the right answer on a religion exam at some point. But it's not, you see, just an idea, it's a practice, and it was practiced in Strasbourg week after week. And then there's the third, the normative use of the law. Its ability, as Calvin said, to provide a beautiful blueprint for holy living and therefore an entirely positive function. Calvin completely affirmed the Ten Commandments restrain evil, they convict us of our sin, but then Calvin said there is so much more. In 1539, Calvin heard that prayer every week that I just read and actually did a very interesting thing. He himself decided to become a songwriter. It was right at this year that Calvin himself wrote some musical settings of the Psalms. He did about six of them himself. And he also did a musical setting of the Ten Commandments. In his musical setting of the Ten Commandments, he ended every commandment, he'd sing a little bit, and then sing the phrase, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, the second use of the law again. But then it was right at this time that if you read Calvin chronologically, there's a shift. And he starts talking about the third use of the law, not as an afterthought, but as its principal function in the Christian life. And he commissioned songwriters and musicians to prepare a brand new setting of the Ten Commandments, and it's found in your Trinity hymnal at number 724. Oh, I teach a lot of examples from worship through the history of the church. I cannot think of a more vivid example of a radical musical transformation than between Calvin's first um, penitential setting of the Ten Commandments and this one. This is the positive third use of the law in musical form, and it dances along. Let me sing a little bit for you. My soul recall reverent wonder How God amid the fire and smoke Proclaimed his holy law with thunder From Sinai's mountain when he spoke I am the Lord your God and sovereign Who out of bondage set you free who saved you from the land of Egypt, then serve no other gods but me. You shall not bow to graven idols, for I, a jealous God, your Lord, shall punish sin in those who hate me, but love all those who keep my word. I'm just going to tell you that you get that tune rolling around in your head, yum, thum, pum, 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 pum. You might actually be whistling a little later on campus. It is buoyant, joyful music. And it was extremely intentional. 
So English majors, look at the little detail on the bottom of the page. If you look at the tiny print on the bottom of the page, you see in French the commandments of God. And then you see four numbers. These numbers always tell a story. 9898. Every poetic meter has a personality. Every one. And 9898 is pithy poetry. It's just four lines. Not like the long seven-line Psalm 130 we did yesterday. You can actually count those syllables out in the tune. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. See how that works? When Calvin commissioned his professional poet in resonance, Clement Moreau, who had come from France, he said, I want a melody that will resist sluggishness. Remember that word, sluggishness. Moreau thought about it and said, Calvin, what about a little 9898 uh, action on the Ten Commandments? And I think Calvin smiled and said, let's, let's give it a shot. The melody was actually borrowed from a, a similar hymn that was being sung in other contexts at the time. In music majors, here's a little thing about music of this time period. All the notes basically came in two lengths. There was a double note, the first note, and then single notes, uh, which here are rendered as eighth notes. And so all you had to work with rhythmically were a short note and one that was twice as long. The ones at the end of the phrase kind of don't count. Those, were, those are really just extensions. And so the musician had to think, how do I take 9898 and have it resist sluggishness. If the musician had rendered the melody as dum pom 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 pom, you could have sung the poetry, but there would not have been the resistance to sluggishness in the music. So the musician put a little jig in the tune, don't you think? Yum, pum, 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 brum, ba, da, dum, pum, 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 pum. When the early Queen Elizabeth of that time period heard about these songs coming from Geneva, she actually did refer to them at one point as the Genevan jigs because there was a dance-like quality to the energy. And by the way, a century later, the musicians who got some big pipe organs playing in Europe, flattened them all out and tended to make every note the same length. And by doing that for a hundred or more years, it's prevented us really from seeing what was going on. But what I want you to feel is that buoyant energy. The law of the Lord is good, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is the guide to the way that we express gratitude to the God who saved us. In the Reformed Catechisms, oh yes, you talked about the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments you always talked about at the end. The Catechism, structured like the Book of Romans, sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. Where do you put the Ten Commandments? If the principal use of the law of God is joyful, grateful, guide for living, then you take those Ten Commandments and you put them in the last section and you sing them so that you will be resisting spiritual sluggishness. 
there's a marvelous little passage from a pastor in a tiny little village north of Geneva. And this pastor recounted how this musical setting of the Lord's, uh, of the Ten Commandments was used in ministry. And this is, this is what he wrote, Charles Perrault. Well, the way I used to do a catechism service, wrote this pastor, was that every Sunday we would gather in the afternoon and we would always sing through the Ten Commandments with the men and the women one table of the law at the beginning of our catechism service and the second table of law at the end of our catechism service. And then I do love what he added. He said, except during the extreme cold of winter. <laughs> People from Michigan love that little line there. I love that little line because it does humanize it too. But you get a sense of a pastor who put this in motion every single week in trying to teach the basics of the Christian faith. Rather beautiful. I'd love for you to hear what Calvin said about the third use of the law in his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion. On my shelf, there are a couple editions, but it's like a, this fabulous 1,200-page, really, introduction to the Christian faith. And if you drop right in the second book, seventh chapter, second section, there is Calvin's famous passage where he expounds on the third use of the law. But what I want you to hear as I read a few portions is the melody. Yum, pum, 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 pum. Calvin writes, the third use of the law being also the principal use and more closely connected with its prosper end, has respect to believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. The law of God is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what the will of the Lord is which they aspire to follow and to confirm them in this knowledge. Let none of us deem ourselves exempt from this necessity, for none of us have attained such a degree of wisdom as that they may not, by daily instruction of the law, advance to a purer knowledge. By frequently meditating upon the law of God, the believer will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it, drawn away from the slippery paths of sin, and in resistance of the sluggishness of the flesh which otherwise sets in. David surely had this view, in view, Calvin writes, when David produced this high eulogy of the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And that little two verses from Psalm 19 can, comes back every time that Calvin talks about the law for the next 20 years of his ministry. It always feels to me like a text that made a deep impression on Calvin and actually led to his commissioning of a new song by his professional poet, Clement Moreau. Turn back to 700 and 24 one more time. Notice how when Clement Moreau sets it, stanzas two through eight are all in quotation marks. Stanza one is kind of a framing stanza, my soul recall with reverent wonder. 
stanza nine, the one way at the end, the one the song leader's always going to cut because the hymn is going to seem a little too long to sing, is actually a single stanza summary of Calvin's vision. Teach us, Lord God, to love your precepts, the good commandments of your love. Give us the grace to keep your statutes with thankfulness and proper awe. One of the things I noticed growing up is that as believers matured in Christ, there seemed to be two pathways. Some people, the longer they got into their Christian journey, the more sad they became, and honestly, the more angry they became. Some people, the longer they went into their Christian journey, the more settled they became, the calmer they became. It might not have been ecstatic joy, especially in difficult circumstances, but there was a kind of quiet, settled, twinkle-in-the-eye gratitude about them. I especially saw this because I grew up as a minister's kid, and I would watch people who would talk to my dad about church life and about sermons. And we've talked about this joyfully over the years, that after a sermon, there would be people who would express gratitude. After a pastoral visit, there would be people who expressed gratitude. There were other people who seemed to think that the epitome of the Christian life was being angry. And as, as we've talked about it over the years, we, we do smile by saying, some of us seem to be never happier than when we're angry, and never happier than when we're sad. Oh, there is reason to be angry. There is reason to be discerning and disappointed. There is reason to express sorrow. But when that becomes sort of the vision of the Christian life set before us, Calvin would be the first to say, so much is missing. The vision of the Christian life that Calvin held before his people was a vision of deep gratitude and joy. And he wanted to sing it into the souls of Genevan children and youth. There's one other entry that I'd like to read from Professor Capick's book. Just a little part of it. It's the entry on sanctification. Sanctification, an area of soteriology, our understanding of salvation, describing the holiness of the church and the individual believer as a gift of God's grace and election. In Reformed Orthodoxy, sanctification is rooted in justification by faith and elaborates the work of the Spirit through the mortification of sin and renewal of life to active fellowship with God. It was John Calvin who emphasized the importance of God's progressive work of conforming with believers into the likeness of Christ. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ consists of the lavish grace of forgiveness. Absolutely. And it also consists of the lavish grace of God working in our hearts to prompt us to want to love God and to honor and serve God. And it includes the lavish grace of God's commandments to show us how to live in joy 
Salvation includes all that. What a gift it is to be able to confess our sin, and what a gift it is to be able to whistle a tune that conveys joy in Christian loving and to have it ground our lives. Please join me in prayer. Almighty and loving God, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would open up in our hearts new layers of joy, of rejoicing in your Spirit through the law and guidance that you have given us. What a gift to live as your children. What a gift to receive forgiveness. What a gift to live in Christian community. What a gift to receive callings and to service in every area of life. What a gift for a college like Covenant that prepares everyone here for that kind of ministry in Christian life. May this be a place that is an incubator of Christian joy and conformity with the lavish law that you've given. And so we pray for all of us that you would teach us, Lord God, to love your precepts, the good commandments of your law. Give us the grace to keep your statutes with thankfulness and proper awe. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.